I truly believe that unless each individual leader is willing to look at themselves and look at their own behavior, they're not going to be able to drive change. You start with how you're showing up and you really have to be brave with that because we are not perfect. None of us are perfect and we're not going to be perfect. We are all works in progress. Welcome to the Whole Human Work Podcast. This is Orin Shai, and today's episode could not be more aligned with the whole purpose behind this podcast. When I started this thing, it was not for some deep desire to have a podcast and be able to listen to myself on Spotify. I truly felt compelled to address the severe lack of readily available examples of people who are leading in the world in a way that is more embodied, that is more grounded, where they are taking responsibility for their nervous system in the workplace and demonstrating what that means. What can that result in? And our guest for this conversation is the best example I could hope for of somebody who has not only ideas, but also lived experience showing up in this whole human way and very tactical perspectives and advice as to how you can do the same. Manette Norman is the co-author of the Psychological Safety Playbook, Lead More, Powerf- Lead-, <laughs> Lead More Powerfully by Being More Human. As soon as I encountered her work on LinkedIn, I knew I've got to learn more about her story and find a way to share it with you all. It just so happens that Manette's second book, The Boldly Inclusive Leader, just came out last week. So please check that out. You'll hear us refer to it during our conversation. And for the formal stuff, Manette is an author, speaker, leadership consultant who's previously spent decades leading global technical teams in the software industry. And if you're thinking, well, my work's a little bit different, we're kind of distributed, Manette has extensive experience leading internationally distributed teams and has proven that when groups embrace diversity in all of its forms, breakthroughs emerge, innovation accelerates, And unlike me, where I kind of have to tell you to take my word for it, Manette has been responsible for influencing more than 3,500 engineers globally in her last role as VP of Engineering at Autodesk. She has walked the talk of what it really means having that operational excellence in place while nurturing a collaborative and inclusive culture. Manette is a keynote speaker on topics of inclusive leadership, psychological safety, collaborative teams, and empathy. And we are so fortunate to have her with us today. One thing that I definitely do want to bring into this conversation is your very unique trajectory into this work and speaking and writing about inclusive leadership. So would you share a bit about what that journey looked like and and how that led you to this point? My very interesting background. Yes. (laughs) Happy, Happy to share my very interesting background and probably not the typical background you'd think of as someone who ended up in tech leadership. I I went to university and studied drama and French, which already is people go, really? What? How'd you do that? So I wanted to be an actor. I wanted to be a professional actor. I took acting really seriously, came out of Tufts University in 1982 with a double major in drama and French, thinking I'm going to go to New York and try to make it as an actor and realized pretty quickly, I just wasn't cut out for the audition lifestyle of like you go and you get rejected and you go back and you get rejected again and you have to make a living meanwhile. And so 
I realized I just, I think I'm too sensitive for this. This hurts too much to be rejected all the time. And so I fell back on my second major, which was my, my fluency in French. And I got a job. This is now the mid eighties. I got a job working at the French trade commission in New York city when they were introducing computers for the first time. And suddenly we had, we went from having typewriters on the desk to having IBM PCs. And it was the first time I had really used a computer and I took to it and I was a quick study. And one of the things that I figured out I was good at was first, I wasn't intimidated by just trying things, but I was also good at helping other people learn because a lot of people were quite intimidated by this new technology. And so that, that ability to like not be scared of it demystify it and then help others led me to my work in tech because my first job, I, I moved, I actually moved back to California in the late eighties. I had grown up in San Francisco Bay area. So I moved back and I got my first job in tech working at Adobe. And this was in 1989. And it was when they were developing Photoshop 1.0. And my first job was to write the Photoshop 1.0 tutorial, which came out in 1990. And that was really the beginning of 30 years in the software industry. And briefly, I'll just tell you, because I, I stayed as a technical writer for about 10 years and I went from Adobe to several other companies. I think I went to five different companies in 10 years. And at the end of those 10 years, I was at Autodesk. So I went there in 1999 as an individual contributor tech writer. And I had no aspirations to manage teams, be a leader, be an executive. That was just not even in my mind at all. But my manager, when I joined Autodesk, said, you know, first of all, I think you'd be a really good manager. And second of all, I need someone to manage the team of writers because I have too many direct reports and I would really like you to do it. And I just didn't think I wanted to do it. I thought the technology was really interesting and I wanted to keep learning the tech but I took the job as a, as a people manager. So I started out just managing a small team of writers. And I suddenly realized, well, you know what? People are way more interesting than technology. And they're actually way more complicated. And I loved it. And I, that, that basically was the next 20 years of me in various management leadership positions and ending up at the, the last five years in tech as a VP of engineering at that same company at Autodesk managing over a thousand people on my org chart and influencing about 3,500. So going from an actor to someone working at the French Trade Commission to being a tech writer to managing thousands of people, that was really unexpected, but pretty amazing. From reading some of this, the, the background and story in your book, it sounds like there was this, this recognition as you made these shifts and, and continued transforming in your career, this continued recognition of, of more and more layers of what it means to show up as an inclusive leader, as a leader who really is connecting with people. So much so. And, you know, I, I certainly write about this a lot in the book and, and just in things that I'm writing is that we generally are so badly prepared to manage humans. You know, so many of us, just like me, move into management and leadership because we're good at something. So I was a good technical writer. I'm going to go manage tech writers now. And then I'm going to take on managing engineering and all of these other things. And, and you're not prepared for it. Like you may take a class or two, but what I just kept learning is that people are, first of all, just infinitely complex and that you can't manage everyone the same way, right? There's no one size fits all. And I found myself, even in those early days, adjusting because 
this person, you know, really likes to just cut to the chase of things and is very direct. And this person is super sensitive and I'm going to have to approach them differently with feedback, for example. So, so that kind of thing I was learning early on. But then as my career progressed and I was managing both larger and also more global, multicultural teams, more diverse teams in all ways, I realized, oh, wow, right, you know, here we are, we're, for example, working for a US-based company, but managing global teams of people from all countries and all cultures. It's like, oh, no one taught me how to do this either. And the fact that different cultures communicate really differently. And I mean, that's, again, a huge education, you know, suddenly being an American manager, managing people in Europe and Asia and realizing that I need to really flex my style. I need to run meetings differently. I need to listen differently because people are not communicating in the same way. That All that, honestly, I learned through trial and error because I didn't really have role models. I didn't see a lot of super inclusive leaders. I saw people managing in one style often. And, and I thought like, I don't actually want to emulate that. I think there's a better way. So I was, I was reading a lot over the years, you know, learning and watching and seeing like, okay, I think that's really great behavior. And I don't want to emulate that behavior and just getting as much of a self-education as I could, because honestly, there was no curriculum for this. Yes. That's something that struck me while reading your story was I, I don't imagine you would open up HBR, or I guess at that time, be reading HBR in physical print and and come across articles about empathy and going deep into emotional intelligence. This was before that wave. So it's fascinating to me how you carved out this path when this was not a conversation. No, it is really true. And in fact, I would say like those last five years even, so the last five years I'm talking about for, were from about 2014 to to 2019. Those were my last five years in the software industry. And during that time, as I was leading engineering, I put on this big engineering summit every year and I would give a keynote. And I decided during that time that each time I gave a keynote, it wasn't going to be about a technical topic because there were plenty of people who could do that better than I could. And so I picked a different aspect of our culture that I wanted to explore in a keynote. And the first one was about collaboration and really like listening to one another and in a, in a way to understand. And the next one I gave was on empathy. So to your point, like I was scouring things, HBR being one of them and anything I could find about empathy. And it was interesting when I first gave a talk on empathy empathy, there was very little conversation about empathy in the workplace. There was a lot of information already about how we need to be empathetic towards our customers. So that was already out there. Like customer empathy has been understood, I think, much, much longer than, oh, we have to actually be empathetic internally. And I discovered something, and it must have been the early days, because now it's been out for eight years. So I might have discovered the first version of it. There's something called the State of Workplace Empathy Report that comes out now every year. And it was, I think, the first one I found. And so that was like, oh, someone cares about this and I can learn from this, right? So I'm, I was always, I didn't want to make this up. I was always looking for material. But to your point, early on, there wasn't much. Now, now you, if you want to look up anything about diversity, equity, inclusion, emotional intelligence, there's just, you know, there's a plethora of information. But when I started exploring these topics, there wasn't as much. And I was definitely looking at, like, I found this book that was quite academic 
uh, called Social by Matthew Lieberman. And it was about how we are wired for connection. And he's a neuroscientist who's done a lot of experiments on the brain and how we are actually, how we as humans, I found this so interesting, we as humans experience pain when we are excluded or rejected. And that pain is no different than physical pain to our brains. It's, it's one and the same. And I remember when I discovered that, I can't remember when his book came out, but that was like, that was so eye-opening to me. And I guess, you know, now again, that's more well understood, but it was new. It was new when I was reading it and I was just blown away. It's an interesting moment we're in right now, I believe, where we have all of this information out there. There's been more and more research done around topics that shed light on how to create more equitable, more inclusive spaces at work. And I would argue there's still a pretty significant gap between what we know and what we do. And I'm curious about your take on that and also maybe to just align on on the, the meaning of inclusivity. What does it really mean to be boldly inclusive? I'm curious about your how you would describe this based upon your own experience and based upon, you know, seeing you nod when I when I speak to the gap between what we know and what we do and what's going on there. Yes, I really do agree with you. There's so much out there now. Like there's almost in some ways you could say there's too much literature and like, oh right, I just wrote another book adding to the collection of books on inclusive leadership or diversity, equity, inclusion. And yet I do think there is this gap because what I see is that a lot of people get overwhelmed by the amount of material out there and the fear of I'm going to get this wrong and they get paralyzed. It's really easy as a leader to say like, I'm going to, I'm afraid of doing something wrong. And so I'm just going to be really cautious and not do anything. And I think that's one of the reasons for the gap in, yes, there's all this information, but our behavior is not necessarily aligning. But to your question about what does it mean to be inclusive and to be boldly inclusive with the with the you know the the qualifier that I put on my book? So I, you know, basically, I think that being inclusive means that everyone in your organization feels that their voice is welcome. They are seen for who they are. They don't have to conform to group norms. That they are appreciated for what they uniquely bring, and that they have all the opportunities that everyone else does. And that's kind of a basic definition. And, and why I use the word boldly in the title of my upcoming book is that I think we have been too cautious and leaders are often quite cautious in, I'm going to dip my toe into this, but I'm not going to go all in. And to me, it's like, you have to go in on this all in and say, yes, I am going to be a challenger of the status quo even if it's uncomfortable. I am going to speak up for those who do not have a voice and I'm going to raise up the voices who may be unable or uncomfortable speaking up. And I will do that because I know it's the right thing to do, even if it's going against the tides. I think that's the only way we make these changes because let me let me share something someone has asked me because I had a 30-year career in tech. Someone not that long ago said, oh, it must have been like, you know, ancient history, 1989 in tech. I bet it was really bad then being a woman, like about the same as it is now. I mean, things have not evolved that much in those decades since we really got started in this tech industry. Of course, we're much more aware of these things. Like certainly we didn't even know the words diversity, equity, and inclusion in 1989. But have we profoundly changed our workplaces? I would argue not. 
I would argue that in some ways, maybe we've taken a step back in many cases. And even if you just look at demographics, the demographics haven't changed that much in terms of women and other underrepresented groups, like the numbers are not dramatically different. And women, for example, I know in tech, like in some cases, the numbers are, the percentages are going down rather than up. So I just don't, I, you know, I don't think we have time to say, oh, we're making gradual progress. Look at how far we've come. Like, I'm not impressed with that. Yes. Agreed. Thank you for saying it. <laughs> and I, I don't know, like maybe, I don't know if that's unpopular, but I'm just going to say it because I was, I was in it for so long and I'm like little steps forward, but come on, we can do better than this. I think there's something, if we want to look at one root cause of that, just that reluctance to, to lean into that discomfort that you named and to go beyond incremental change is something that you address in your book, which is this personal responsibility and self-awareness and really this this personal journey that you, you need to go on to be able to exhibit these behaviors and, and make some of these changes that you're speaking to. I think that's really true. I, I truly believe that unless each individual leader is willing to look at themselves and look at their own behavior, they're not going to be able to drive change. Because when you think about I mean, sort of the order of events that I look at is that you lead a team, maybe a large team, maybe a small team. You start with how you're showing up and you really have to be brave with that because we are not perfect. None of us are perfect and we're not going to be perfect. We are, what I say in my book, I think probably too many times, but I say we are all works in progress because I think that's a useful mindset to have is that I'm not going to be perfect, whether I am the CEO of the company or a first line manager, but I'm willing to learn and I'm willing to put myself out there and be vulnerable and admitting that I don't have all the answers. I'm learning we're learning together and I'm going to try to do better here. And then, then you can really change the culture around you, change the team behaviors, change the norms, but you can't, you can't jump over that step of looking at like, how am I showing up? How am I communicating? How am I listening? What am I rewarding? And what am I tolerating? All of those things are really important questions. And one of the things you'll, you've seen, I know that you've you've started reading the book is that I put a lot, like I end each chapter with a bunch of uh, sort of retro- retrospective questions to ask yourself every day and every week because it's a practice and because it's ongoing that you don't just like flip a switch and become an inclusive leader. It's like, okay, how am I showing up in meetings? How am I listening? How am I reacting when I get challenged? What if I'm not getting challenged? What am I doing to invite dissent? All of these things is like, it starts with our own behavior. And I, I do think it's learnable and teachable. And I think that's one of the things that people fear like, oh, well, you know, you have a certain natural level of EQ and this person doesn't. And yes, that may be true that innately some of us are more intuitive or more empathetic, but all of this is learnable. I mean, these are, these are like skills that you can put in place. So that I think is, that's one of the things that I'd like to encourage is it's, it's not impossible. Even if you feel like you're starting as a beginner, that's okay. Yes. It's by no means impossible. And it does take commitment. It does take effort and investing the the time and energy into a way of developing yourself that some of us have not have not engaged with. And that's that that's one thing that I personally wish that in in all of these corporate DI programs we could be more honest about is that 
This is an invitation to do the work that you need to do to be able to show up in this way. But you can't skip that work and then follow a stepwise formula to be more to be a more inclusive leader. You you just can't skip it. It's the foundation for everything. Because without that self-awareness, it's we we've all experienced, I believe, working with somebody who's saying something they don't really understand or believe. I completely agree. And that was one of the things I really didn't want to write was a book that has like, oh, there are three steps or there are five steps, you know, and then you're an inclusive leader because it is, it is this work we all have to do. And, you know, one of the things that I also really believe and, and I say in the book is that sometimes we think, okay, well, our real work is delivering our business results, whatever those may be for our industry. And then on the side, we have this other thing where we're working on culture or we're working on DEI or whatever it is. And I'm going to really focus on business results and making sure we hit our quarterly numbers or whatever that is. And then when I have a little bit of, when I have some spare cycles, I'm going to focus on culture. And so again, I want to just challenge that completely and say, first of all, you're never going to have time. You're never going to have those spare cycles. So, so just forget that idea. But the other thing that I really want to get across is that these two should not be separated. Your culture, your investment in people, all of that will drive business results. And, you know, I don't need to provide the business case for diversity and inclusion in the workplace because that has been, I mean, there's just so much about that, that we know more diverse teams perform better, more diverse boards perform better. And it's a, it's across all aspects of business performance, whether it's the financials or innovation or employee engagement and retention and well-being. So all of those things drive your business results. Why wouldn't you be investing in them just as much as you are in like hitting those numbers? So that to me is one of the you know, the gaps in understanding, I think, from a lot of leaders is that this is the nice to have, it's the touchy feely stuff, and maybe we'll spend a little time on it, but we're driving a business here. This is a business. It's a machine. We got to keep it well oiled. How many mechanistic (laughs) terms do we have that are thrown around, thrown about in corporate spaces? And this is effectively, I think, the, the shift we're speaking to here. If you're in, especially within a tech company, in when you're talking about a, a company that's built by its its people, its knowledge, we have got to get with the times when it comes to just acknowledging that there are human beings typing that code. There are human beings making those sales, keeping the lights on. This is something that we've addressed at a surface level. You know, we we have we're in that era of of perks and Tech is known as an industry where employees are really well taken care of in many different ways. And there is an opportunity, especially as the innovators, to be able to demonstrate this is how you do business when you are truly a human-led organization, when you have leaders throughout the organization who show up with their full humanity. And we haven't quite because I think some of that discomfort that you pointed to, it is a very uncomfortable thing for these brilliant folks, many of whom I've worked with, people who are just so impressive and have been so impressive their entire lives that the idea of getting messy, getting things wrong, making mistakes to your point, that is too much to bear. And our organizations are not set up 
to allow for those mistakes and for that learning process itself to happen. Yeah, I would agree with you. I think that's one of the biggest issues for people to overcome is that embracing failure as part of innovation and business. And especially, so it's interesting because it depends what industry you're dealing with. So if you're dealing with biotech or something or pharma, for example, where, you know, it'll take 20 years to bring a a drug to the market, right? They are used to failure along the way. That's part of science. And I really wish that we could take that mindset a little bit more into other industries is that if you really, I mean, not 20 years, obviously, because many industries can't tolerate the 20 years to bring a drug to market. But in the software industry, you know, there was this idea of, well, we're going to do agile software development and we're going to iterate and we're going to learn from our mistakes. But honestly, it was very, I I saw it very rarely work well because there was still this insistence of, oh, but we have to have this great product and we're not really going to iterate and learn and fail fast. And, you know, I mean, there's, there's a lot of resistance and there's also too often, I think the shaming and blaming when things go wrong and when things don't go as planned instead of, oh, how interesting, what can we learn from this? How can we move forward? And, you know, I, I certainly have read a lot about this in recent years. You know, the the playbook that I wrote with Caroline Helbig, the psychological safety playbook, a lot of that is about embracing failure. And we we did a lot of reading about failure and some some very big disasters have been caused by people being afraid to speak up and share things that are going wrong. And, you know, for example, the the Boeing 737 MAX disaster where two planes went down in, I think it was 2017 and 2018, that has been traced back to people not being willing to speak up about problems they saw and they knew about. And so this is where I feel like if we could create these cultures where we can talk about what's going badly, openly, without shame, then we can avoid the you know the really big failures and instead learn you know iteratively, which is what we always wanted to do when we talk about like agility. But instead, there's still the stigma of oh, we can't point out what's really happening here, and and so I think I think that's a big thing. And I think that I just I had this great example that I shared recently on LinkedIn because it struck me so much. I was at a client site a couple of weeks ago. We were doing a session on psychological safety. I had already been in and given a talk and then I asked them, it was really just a Q&A session of like, what's going well? What have you been struggling with? And failure was one of the things that came up. And one of the members who was there said, you know, I had I had a really bad failure where I didn't share some critical information and it came up in a meeting and my manager was there and I blindsided her because I didn't tell her and I felt terrible. I was blaming myself. I'm beating myself up. And her reaction was really calm. After the meeting, she just said, look, we're still learning to work together. And I love that in so many ways because First of all, it doesn't point the fingers like, yeah, you screwed up. What a terrible person you are, which is going to put you on the defensive. But it's also that it's showing it's not just you. It's not a one-way street. We are learning to work together and I have a role to play here. So how can we do this better? So the next time you share that information openly with me. And I think if we could, you know, that's, that's just like a great turn of phrase. It does. You don't even have to be a manager to use it, but anytime you're struggling with someone or there is something that goes wrong, how about just trying that out? Like we're trying to, we're learning to work together. What might we do differently and explore it as something to learn from instead of to hide or be ashamed of? Yeah. There's something implicit in there, which is a level of respect. That is, that's not a phrase that a manager who looks down on or sees their, their team members as less than would use. 
And that's that's one, I think, great example of how like a, a phrase can capture and, and that interaction can capture a very a different embodiment of leadership. I think that's true. It's the, and, and there is, I mean, honestly, I saw a lot of leaders over the years who did have this sense of like, I'm up here and I'm obviously gesturing, like I'm at a higher level and you're at a lower level. And we never, ever forgot about that hierarchy. And I, it, and you don't, it doesn't feel like two human beings who are equally important. It really feels like I'm on a pedestal. You're down here. I'm going to tell you what to do. I'm going to speak down to you. And that, of course, doesn't bring out the best. Whereas this leader who was, she was an executive and I don't know the level of the person who, who had the, who made the error or didn't speak up. She spoke to him just as an equal, like we are learning to work together. And that is, that's how you get people to bring their best selves and really like show up with their full potential instead of, oh, I have to please the, the executive, you know, and I don't dare do anything wrong. Yeah. That's how you, you empower beyond just giving people stretch assignments, but actually treating them like they are somebody who you, you respect and you respect their contribution and you're willing to learn and grow alongside them as opposed to being your perfect self and only doing whatever work you need to do in the background. That's so true. I like. I, I think what's really important there is also that remembering that as a leader, I can learn as much from you, even if you're my staff member, as you may learn from me. It doesn't mean just because I'm in a higher position that I know everything or that I know more than you. And in fact, what I would say is if you're really a brave and courageous leader, and I hope many, many people listening are, is that you hire people to complement your skills. So you hire people who know things you don't, who are better than you at other things, and then you let them do that great work to complement the skills around the team and, and, you know, fill in for your gaps. And so I think what, what I think insecure leaders do is they hire people who are exactly like them because they're most comfortable with them, or they hire people who are not going to challenge them. Like, oh yeah, this person isn't as expert as I am. But what you want is the people who have different skills and who will challenge your thinking. That, I think, is what makes a great leader. I'd love to take a moment to read a snippet from from the book. This is something that stood out to me because, as you know, this is a, a passion of mine is, is bringing this idea of, of leading in a more human way, creating more human cultures and organizations. And in chapter four, you speak to what it means to be a human leader. And you write... Being a human leader means showing up as an imperfect person with all your strengths and all your flaws. It means being in touch with your emotions and using emotions as data that helps you process information. Being a human leader means inviting other perspectives and letting go of the need to be right. And this is a really tangible description of something that I think many of us can make out to be a, a bigger or a softer or a, I don't know, more, more ambiguous, fuzzy idea where we're speaking to a way of being that it doesn't just show up in your work. It shows up everywhere you go. The degree to which you're willing to bring your full self, including the polished parts and the not so polished parts. And there can be this perception like that's, that's going to almost do away with with what a leader has cultivated over their whole journey. We take this whole journey in order to get to a place where we feel like we have more certainty, 
we appear to be more perfect. And as we know from our personal lives and our personal relationships, that doesn't work. And yet we try and keep that charade up at work. That is so true. We, I mean, that's the thing is that we do think, and the, and I think it's just the traditional models of leadership that have been around us that you do have to show up with this facade. Like, you know, you come to work and you put on your facade of, I am now a leader and I know everything and I have no, there are no chinks in the armor here. I'm fully, you know, protected. And I, you know, what my, my challenge is, is that that's not actually how people want their leaders to show up. They want to see human beings right? That's how we connect. We connect to fellow humans and seeing someone who doesn't have all the answers, that's actually someone you're going to trust more. Now, I do recognize also that there's a balancing act. And I think this is where where some people struggle is like, how vulnerable am I supposed to be? Am I supposed to share everything about my life? And and I really want to caution, no, right? You don't want to like say everything about it because you can actually go too far and make people uncomfortable when you start sh- sharing like super personal things that probably are inappropriate to share at work. But, you know, you can start small. You can start by admitting just a mistake that you made or a decision that you thought was the right decision that you had to revisit. And yeah, I think that's, that's something I write about at some point in the book is that we think that once we make a decision as a leader, we must commit, move forward. And yes, we do want to try to always do that. But sometimes new information comes up. Sometimes you hear something that makes you have to revisit a decision. And I think the strong thing to do there is to say, look, we thought we had all the information when we made this decision. But things have changed or the, you know, the environment has changed and we're going to course correct here and we're going to change and go in this direction. And admitting that is scary, right? Because you have to get up and like maybe, maybe a few weeks ago or last quarter you got up and you said, this is the way we're going. This is what we're doing. And then the whole, the whole environment changes or technology, something didn't work and you have to course correct and you get up and say, you know what, what I announced last time we were actually having to change. You get up and you do that and you say, we did the best we could. I did the best I could as a leader. And there's something new that I learned. And so now I'm going to shift. And I remember the first time I had to do that. And I felt it was, it was fairly early in my management career. I had made a decision based on the information I had. And it turned out to be a really bad decision. And it wasn't a big one. It was actually where we were going to put a, one of my headcount was going to be in one office and realized that that was the wrong place for a time from a time zone perspective. And it made sense to put it in Europe rather than the US. And I had to get up and announce, you know what, I I made this decision a little bit on my own and I didn't realize all the ramifications. And now we're going to move this position somewhere else. And I remember thinking, you know, people are going to think I'm an idiot. They're going to think I'm incompetent and all the self-doubt. And instead, people were like, I really appreciate that you changed your mind about that because it makes so much more sense. And I think that they respected me more for changing my mind. But at the moment, I felt like, oh, gosh, this shows I'm a failure. So I think that's where we underestimate people around us, that they they recognize humanity, they recognize imperfections as not as something bad, but as something that they could actually respect. As a leader, you can give permission to others to show up in that way by modeling it yourself. And I know I've, I've done a, a fair amount of, of poking at like the current state of leadership and, and all the ways in which it's it could be more human. And I think it's important to address what what's behind some of those those thought loops that were happening for you in that moment these things that come up for us when we have this block 
when it comes to speaking more freely, being more transparent. I like to speak about this as as prioritizing connection over control. We're very well trained in in terms of our control muscle, and that is a does a great job of keeping our our ego safe and of helping us feel like we have a sense of of stability. But it's a delusion. <laughs> and and if we're going to make a change there, I think it's helpful to recognize why do I have these patterns? Why is it so hard for me to demonstrate something like you just described there, Manette? And yeah. this is a deeply ingrained cultural pattern. This is a collective thing. This is not just about somebody who's listening as a leader who's feeling like, oh, I'm really, I'm really behind here. This is something we all have to move through going back to that idea of our individual journeys where we've been conditioned that people who are smart don't give the wrong answer when they raise their hand in class. People who have all their stuff together are organized. Don't forget about a time zone difference, for example. Like These are things that are deeply ingrained in us. And as we explore in somatic work, it's even at the level of the tissue. Like This stuff goes deep. So I'm curious what your thoughts would be just about that. And I guess in service of, for one, accessing some more compassion for ourselves and where we're starting and also recognizing we are not alone by any stretch. We've just done a really good job hiding this from each other. That is so true. We are so we are I think you're right that this goes down to a cellular level that this is I think it's our biology, right? Our brains are here to protect us and keep us safe and anything that seems risky to us is something we want to avoid. And so for example, it's it feels as a leader much safer to be fully in control you know, control, as you said, control versus connection, control, like I am going to say all the right things, do all the right things, because that's going to keep me out of danger. But if I am going to expose that I don't have all the answers, or even optimize for connection with others, and with with others, with other humans, you never know what's going to happen, right? For example, like, let's just take something, you're a leader, and you're holding a meeting, and you have a presentation, you can control your presentation, you can control every word you say, you can control what's on your slides. And then you get to the Q&A and you have no idea what anyone's going to throw at you and you've lost control completely. And you're now connecting with this audience. And this is where, I mean, this is where I've seen actually leaders fall down so badly because they, they couldn't control it and they couldn't even control their reactions. So if, for example, someone in a meeting asks you a challenging question, you're not prepared for what happens often is that, especially if it puts them on the defensive, is they lash out at the person who asked the question, destroying the con- just the connection right then and shaming the person and signaling to everyone that they are not inclusive and they're not creating a safe environment. But you still have, I mean, this is where I think this illusion of control is is an illusion, as you said. But you can, this is where self-awareness comes in. Let's say in that same scenario, someone asks you a really challenging question. You're up in front of a thousand people and they ask you a question that makes you uncomfortable. You do have a choice on how you want to respond. You know, that, that whole thing about reaction versus response and that we can't, we can't necessarily control our brain's reaction, that that put me on the defensive and my heartbeat is racing. But instead I can take a breath and I can say, wow, thanks for that question. And 
I don't even have a great answer to it. And that calms you down, right? In that moment, you've calmed yourself. You know all this work, obviously. This is the body, like the breath, and just like my brain is now coming back online. And if maybe I don't have the answer and I can say, I want to get back to you on that. Or I can say, can I have a little bit more time to think about that? Or does someone else in the room have an answer to the question and invite someone else in? All of that is in your control, but you have to be aware enough that Yes, you've lost control of the room because you don't know what's coming at you, but you do get to decide how to respond. And I think if more leaders, this is actually a lot of the work that I do and I had to do on myself. Honestly, this is a lot of work I did on myself personally. Is like, I didn't control my reactions very well until I became acutely aware of what was happening. Like I'm getting defensive and I'm not going to be my best self when I'm defensive. And so hold on, take that breath, pause and then decide how to respond. That that kind of thing is so powerful and it 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 sounds it's it's both hard and simple, right? It's hard to remember and to say like okay, I am not at my best right now. Let me let me not speak for a moment. But it's simple because it really does just take a breath, a pause and then you can actually decide how you how you do want to respond. So, yeah, this whole idea of control versus connection, I think we can reframe it. It's like we can always be connected and we can control our responses if we're aware of what's going on with our brain and our body. Yeah. Different than trying to control all the externalities through our behavior, but rather coming back to our own internal state. And because this is, this is a pattern for many of us, it can be hard to interrupt that pattern. And so that comes back to a notion you brought up earlier around practice, which is a word I notice you use throughout the book which I'm grateful for because that is something and I'm sure you've experienced in in corporate learning and development and leadership development spaces. There's a, there's a strong desire on, on the part of many for the prescription. Just give me the thing. Give me like the, forget the one day program. Give me like the four hour program. That's going to click, get all this change to just happen within me. And I'm going to start behaving differently. And recognizing that because we are living, breathing beings in relationship with our environment, we have developed patterning that cannot be changed in in a matter of hours, no matter how great that session may be. And that notion of practice, it does require leaning into discomfort over time, consistently over time. And that comes back to the commitment. It does. And I do use the word practice deliberately. And it's honestly, you know, I, and and it's funny that you mentioned these courses like, oh yes, come in for a two day training or four hour training. And often I'm brought in for only a 90 minute training. (laughs) It's like, you know, nothing's going to change with a 90 minute training unless there's follow up, unless there's ongoing practice. And, and so I'm certainly trying to get that ingrained in people, but, but I do, I mean, this is, this is honestly so much of this book came from personal experience and realizing that None of it is possible unless we are willing to commit to the ongoing day-to-day practice of like, some days are going to be better than others. And some days I'm going to react more positively. And some days I'm going to let my, you know, amygdala take over and I'm going to snap at someone and regret that. And hopefully it won't be the end of the world. But one thing that I do love, and and that is something I've, I've learned about over the years is the fact that we can rewire our brains. You know, we used to think that that there was no such thing as evolving the brain after a certain, like I think they used to think that when you were a teenager, your brain was fully developed, but the neuroscientists have understood that we have neuroplastic brains and 
by practicing new patterns, we can rewire our brains. And so I feel like that's something, of course, I'll be working on the rest of my life, as will anyone else who tries who tries out these things. But it does get easier when you have been practicing like, okay, I'm not going to immediately get defensive here. Even though I feel myself getting defensive, I don't have to react that way. And that pattern has been interrupted for me. And it's not that I'll be perfect at it, but it's definitely, I, I am in the process of rewiring that. And so I think that should give people optimism that your brain can change and that all of this is really possible. This is not pie in the sky ideas that I'm throwing out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you initially jump in the water, that cold might give you a little bit of a shock, but then if you keep jumping into that water every other day, you're going to get used to it and it's going to start to feel good. And it won't won't be affecting you the same way it did initially, but we have to get over that initial hump. Cold water is never going to be one that I can rewire my brain. <laughs> I'm a wimp about <laughs> cold water, but there are other things that I have been able to change. Fair enough. Fair enough. So Minette, uh, one thing I ask all guests to share is in the spirit of practice is one practice or method or something that you do that supports you in showing up in this more fully human, fully you way, in a grounded way, in a present way, in a way that you aspire to? I think what keeps me the most grounded is I'm a big walker. And I walk like almost every day. I'm a big hiker, but I don't even have to go out for a hike to ground myself. I can just go out on a walk around my neighborhood. And what I do, I try to do this all the time because what I find is if I am sitting at my computer, and we all know sitting is bad for us anyway, but even if I'm standing at my computer, just having technology in front of me is not always going to give me my clearest thinking. And especially when I'm struggling with something or I'm stressed or I'm upset or I'm processing something. I find that every time I go for a walk, it's, I mean, it's both the physical activity, but it's also just being outdoors that it changes my brain. And I often have the breakthrough ideas that I couldn't get sitting in front of my screen. They come to me when I'm out walking. And so walking is something that I think it does ground me. I'm on the earth. I'm walking. My feet are touching either the dirt or the concrete. And it does, I mean, it's, it connects my brain and my body and my heart and all of that. And it I definitely helps me emotionally and then intellectually it helps me work through problems too often when i i remember when i was working on this book and i would sit i basically assigned myself time to to write every day while i i had a, i set myself a deadline to get the manuscript done and i had like two or three blocks of time and you know some of those two or three blocks of time i didn't get as much writing done as i wanted get up, go for a walk. And often like, oh, I know what I'm going to do next. And it would come to me while I was out walking, not while I was staring at the page. Yes. And there is there is science behind that. And I'm glad you, you shared a, a practice that's so accessible for many of us because it is, it's something that I, th- I think sometimes we can over-engineer. Like what can help me like get unstuck or reconnect with myself? And this is something I'm constantly hounding like my my clients will say like it's always about the walk with you (laughs) but going for a walk and getting some space outside where you can you can extend to your point like allow your eyes to focus on something that's not two feet in front of you (laughs) and where you're not looking just straight ahead you can breathe fresh air you can get things moving it really can change everything if we allow ourselves to take that opportunity Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, and it just, it'll make you feel good too. I used to do, there was, there was a person I mentored when I was back at Autodesk and we always did our mentoring sessions as a walk. And it was his idea. It was so great. We would, because we were in downtown San Francisco, we would just walk on the Embarcadero for our mentoring sessions and it would be 
so great for both of us because, you know, we were both out there moving and beautiful scenery and talking and uh, new ideas coming. And so like, it's also, it's good for yourself, but it's also good if you can go walk with someone else to have a conversation. Minette, thank you so much for everything that you've shared with us. And thank you for deciding to write this book, The Boldly Inclusive Leader. And I'll share some more information about it. I'll have a link in the show notes as well. Where can people find more about you, about your work, or get in touch with you? Yeah, the easiest place may just be my website, MinetteNorman.com. There are links to things on there, and you can reach out to me there. But I'm also on LinkedIn, and I love to interact with people. I love to hear what's on your mind. So feel free to reach out on LinkedIn or on my website. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation, Or. That's it for this episode of Whole Human Work. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you have some valuable nuggets from it, if there's something that stood out to you, maybe it's something you'd want to hear more about, ping me on LinkedIn or send me an email at orin at whole-human.co. And remember to check out our even number episodes. That's where we get into the somatics behind some of the concepts that arose in the prior interview conversation. Thank you for listening, subscribing, leaving a review, and playing your part to make all this work stuff more human. Thank you.